Richard Wiseman's interest in magic started young. He was fascinated by the illusion and deception involved in drawing the audience's attention to exactly where the magician wanted and to distract them from what else he or she might have been doing. It was this which attracted him to the study of psychology, and he's now Professor of the Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. However, his home is now here in Portobello in a flat looking out over the prom. OK, it's quite a commute to the day job, but it's also why he's interested in the magicians from Portobello, who are once quite famous in their day, and it's their story he'll tell at the next meeting of the Portobello Heritage Trust. It turns out that there are three kind of major magicians associated with this area. One of them is a long-term resident because he's uh, buried in Pierce Hill Cemetery, and that's the incredible Lafayette, who was amazingly famous in his day. He was the sort of David Copperfield of his uh, his time. I believe his dog is also buried there. His, his dog, uh, Beauty, is also there. Yes, it's all part of the... It's an incredible story. So I, I don't give too much away about his story because it's so wonderful, but he, he's known as the only magician to be buried twice which gives you a a kind of clue as to what it was about. He was performing at what was the Empire Theatre in the middle of Edinburgh, now it's the Festival Theatre. During the show, uh, there's a terrible fire and it burns down. They go through and they find his body and bury him and then something happens and he's buried a second time. So we're looking at, at Lafayette because he's this incredible uh, kind so of figure. So it's not the sort of situation that you get in Grey Friars Churchyard where there's a, somebody with a chain and a bell, so it's not as though it's, he's rung the bell to say, oh, I'm not dead. No, as far as I understand, there's been no contact uh, for him for, for over 100 years, so I, I think he's, uh, he's, he's pretty much dead there. And the weird thing is that his dog, Beauty, which he loved, and uh, so he comes into Edinburgh with Beauty and with all this equipment, and a big entourage and so on. He's staying at the Cali Hotel, loves his dog, his dog dies. He has to find a graveyard where he can bury the dog, and, and Piers Hill agreed to that. But the deal is that he himself must be buried there when he dies. So he agrees to that, not knowing it's going to be just a few days later. So it's, so it's incredible. So we're talking about Lafayette. We then move through to, to Portobello. We have uh, Harry Marvello, who is a name that people probably won't know outside of magic, but he's very famous in magic. We're talking 1900s, 1910. He starts here with a sort of beach show. And it shows you how popular Portobello was as a resort. You know, he's building, just by where the amusement arcade is at the moment, 800-seater theatre there and filling it every night. So he's a big figure in Portobello Entertainment at that time. He then goes on tour throughout the UK. He meets another magician, and together they devise a piece of equipment that revolutionises stage magic. So if you go to Vegas and you see any big magic show, you'll be looking at the equipment that was created by Harry Marvello. And finally, Andre Letta, who's from the same era, again, performing these shows in and around Portobello. He doesn't really end up being famous for the public or famous within magic, but he does end up being quite famous within the legal system because he gets taken to court more times than any other magician, as far as I know, in the country. So he's constantly in the Edinburgh courts. Now, you yourself are a magician. Yes, I have a big background in magic. So I, I got into magic when I was about eight years old when my grandfather showed me a trick. And most of my friends are magicians. And I've worked with Copperfield and Darren Brown and, and so on. So, yeah, I have a big background in magic. But you've also spent quite a lot of time actually getting behind the magic as well because there was a show you did about 2012, I think, where you actually 
explained some of the tricks you were doing to the audience. Well, you've done your homework. So, yeah, that, that's right. So magic is a fascinating art form. And I will be talking about some of this at the, uh, uh, the, the talk. The problem with it, unlike juggling or whatever, is that you can't really expose the tricks. Part of the fun is the audience not to know that. But I think the principles, the psychological principles, are amazing. And so I've created some stage shows and some online videos that use those same principles, but in a way that doesn't upset magicians. And then people can see the beauty involved in those principles, as well as the sort of wonder created by the trick. Is that part of why you are now the professor of the public understanding of psychology? Because it is so much a psychological art. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reason I got into psychology was because of magic. If you're performing magic, you realise, first of all, you have to be able to place the audience's attention in a certain place where you're doing something sneaky somewhere else. You have to manipulate their memory. You have to be, hopefully, a reasonably charismatic performer. All these things are psychological. And so I got fascinated by psychology, then went to study it at University College London, which I chose because it's about, I don't know, 100 metres away from the Magic Circle, and then came up to Edinburgh to study uh, psychology of deception up here. And so I'm fascinated by deception, by magic, by the human mind, and often the public don't really quite understand how amazing their minds are. I mean, I always say that each of us, between our ears, are carrying around the most phenomenal object in the universe, and it's, we're not born with a manual. We don't know how it works. So my job is to take academic psychology and translate it to the public in a way that hopefully makes it a bit more accessible and celebrates the, the wonder of how we think and feel and behave. To be honest, I had never known that the University of Edinburgh had a department which dealt with the psychology of deception. Well, uh, they don't. So, so what they have is the, uh, uh, the Kersler Parapsychology Unit. Oh, yes. Bob Morris was the Kersler professor. So Bob was interested in the paranormal. He knew that lots of mediums and psychics were cheating and so wanted someone to study uh, the deception involved in it. But you also make a, a lot of videos as well. Quirkology, I think it's... Yeah, that, that was the name of, I think, my second book. So we, uh, a lot of the psychology I do is quite quirky. And so I thought, quirky psychology, will come up with the word quirkology, which was the title of the book. And then I started to make videos when YouTube was fairly young. YouTube started in 2007. I started in 2009. And these are illusion-based videos. Again, just celebrate how many assumptions we're making or how we look at the world in a particular way and don't realise we're not seeing what's really there and so on. We made these just for fun and they took off and now together I think I've had over 600 million views which I find phenomenal except I now have the slightly depressing experience of students coming up to me in their mid-twenties and saying the reason they got into psychology is because they used to watch them as kids <laughs> makes, me, makes me feel a little bit old but yeah they're still there and it's lovely that people still see them. One of the things I noted not just because of I was interviewing you but, but I've watched several of your videos over time and one of the things that, having a background in, in broadcasting, you're actually watching them on a two-dimensional screen. Mm. And I wonder whether it's because we're watching on that and our brains imagine the third dimension, yes. that that is actually what makes them actually so, so fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of them involve what's called forced perspective, which is that when you see an object, all sorts of things come into your mind to decide how big that object is. And so, in fact, our house is littered with huge wine glasses, tiny little cups, massive chairs, because we've used them all in the, the videos to make a large object look small or a small object look large. So that, that's absolutely right. 
The other thing which is our friend is that we actually film in low res so that there's no HD videos on there because it wouldn't work. So all these things come into play when you actually try and create this stuff. But there is a serious side to your work as well because you work with business mm. to help them perhaps improve the productivity of, of, of the workforce and productivity is a major problem that this country has. Yeah, I mean, so I did all the quirky stuff, did all the deception, did all the paranormal and then one day I went for a coffee with a friend of mine who's CEO of quite a big organisation and she said, like, I'm not very happy. Uh, you understand about psychology of happiness. What, what, what could you do? I started to explain some ideas and she went, can you get on with it because I'm a bit busy? I said, how long have you got? And she said, about a minute. And I thought, well, actually, I think I can say things to you in a minute that will make a difference. And that made me think of other areas of psychology, like productivity and success and motivation. I thought, and that's 59 seconds. And that's 59 seconds. That's the book, 59 Seconds, which was the game changer for me. That, that, that sold all over the world. So we did that book and made some videos uh, from that. And that's about simple things you can do in less than a minute. To, to have an impact in terms of happiness or productivity. It sounds like you're a bit like Michael Mosley, but uh, he takes 10 minutes. That's right. I always say what Michael does in 10, I'll do it in one minute. No. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a similar idea, which is recognising that people are busy and actually they perhaps don't want to know all the information about every study. They just want a very simple take-home message. Now, one thing that stood out for me because of the work I was doing and the shifts I was doing was the piece about sleep deprivation. And that is something, I mean, I, along with another colleague at BBC Scotland, have both fallen asleep at the wheel of a car on returning home. And so sleep deprivation for my former colleagues was actually a, a very serious problem. And I don't think management of almost any organisation takes that seriously enough. Oh, they really should. I mean, I did a book called Night School, which is about exactly that. That what we try to do is we think, oh, what happens is we go to bed and we turn off our minds and in the morning we turn back on again. And so therefore what you can do is compress the night or you can start to sleep when you're, you know, during the day. It doesn't matter when you sleep. None of these things are true. We are kind of biologically engineered to have around about eight hours sleep at a certain time. And you need that to function properly. And so night school is about celebrating the night and making the most of it, learning how to get to sleep. Learning that if you wake up in the middle of the night, laying there anxious about not being asleep, it's a terrible thing. And if you lay there for more than 10 minutes, you should get up and go work on a jigsaw puzzle for 15 minutes. And then go back to bed again so you don't associate your sleep with, with anxiety and sleeplessness. All these simple things to try and make the most of the night because it really matters as perhaps you and your colleagues found out. Okay, let's bring this to an end now because what it strikes me is you've actually had an awful lot of fun in your career. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I don't, don't make a big thing of this at the university, but it does feel like I haven't worked a day in my life because, you know, I, I get to study magic or I get to write a fun book on 59 seconds or make these videos or give the talks that I'm going to be giving in Portobello. So I think fun is important because it brings passion with it, it brings energy. I'm sure I work twice as long as some people, but it doesn't feel like that because, yeah, we're having a good time. Still intrigued, how come you ended up living down here in Portobello? And since this is a footy podcast, I can hardly avoid asking that. <laughs> uh, well, we love Portobello. We've been in Edinburgh for a very, very long time. And then during lockdown, actually, we'd come out here and look at the sea and the beach. And then an opportunity came up and we thought, you know, this is a beautiful place. It's different every day. We know that the expansive views is good for the mind. Sea air is good for you and so on. So here we are. And it's lovely to actually then come full circle and tie up with these key kind of figures within magic. So I'm looking forward to the talk. 
Richard's talk, The Magic of Portobello, will be held in the Celebration Hall at Belfield at 7.30 on Monday the 13th of February. Admission is free and the meeting is open to all. I, for one, am really looking forward to it. And that's it for this episode. I'll need to see what I can conjure up for next week. And of course, if you have any ideas, then please get in touch either through social media or via email to theportypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.